Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to the Gospel of Luke, that third book of the Gospel, of the Gospels of the New Testament. Luke chapter 20, 19 through 26. I, th- I think I have 24 there, but I believe it's 26 is going to be our theme passage today as we look at a disingenuous inquiry. And disingenuous inquiry. Several years ago, there was a man named Michael Woomer. He's also known as the Gator Commander. What a great title, a greater crusader. He's an alligator daredevil from Orlando, Florida. He attempted one day in front of an audience to rope swing across a pool that was filled with gators. And doing so on this one, he'd probably done it many times, he, he goes to swing, he gets about midway in his swing, and the rope snaps, falling into their pit. Fortunately, he was able to get out before he was crusader food for them. He escaped without injury. Now, listen to that story and watching the video myself. Most of us would probably think this guy is just, I question his sanity and his judgment. Because I'm looking at him and this crusader was just carrying on a little bit too much meat himself with a very thin rope. I question how he's going to do it anyway, but he made it halfway. Uh, but we have all watched movies or read books and things of that nature where someone builds a trap, digs a pit, or sets a snare to catch someone or something only to have it backfire on them. In Psalms chapter 7, verse 15, King David, while he is enduring persecution from his enemies, rejoices and gives praise to Yahweh when he sings, he, speaking of David's enemies, they make a pit, they dig it out, but yet they fall into the hole he has made. There's nothing sweeter, though, I'm not advocating vengeance or revenge, but there's nothing sweeter when someone who seeks to harm us fall into the trap of their own making. Last week, as we read the rejection of Jesus, last week, the question of his authority, we see that the rejection of Jesus is actually marvelous because it opened the door for the Gentiles to become sons and daughters of God. The very rejection by the Jews of Jesus opened the door that you and I may receive the gospel. The stone, Jesus, that was discarded becomes the cornerstone of the church, the body of Christ. Jesus, the rejected Messiah, becomes the great high priest, the last prophet, the final king. Jesus, who the religious leaders hated and seek to put to death, has been highly exalted by God, Scripture tells us, and has been given a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess in heaven on earth that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we come to Luke chapter 20 and 19, last week they questioned his authority. What we're going to see as we continue through chapter 20 is two more questions. The religious and political leaders, as we've seen, resent Jesus. 
Not only because he has captured the heart of the people as they are following and flocking to him, but also because they failed to use his popularity for their own agenda. They could not bend Jesus to their machinations and what they wanted Jesus to do. In last week's parable, the wicked tenant, remember the story of the man who bought a vineyard, put tenants in there, but yet they killed and beat his, his uh, servants and eventually his son. It was about questioning Jesus' authority. By what authority do you teach? Do you heal? Do you minister? It was a parable of judgment in which Jesus tells them, hey, you are out of the kingdom of God. You are no longer the mediators. We're judging you. Now that you're going to be replaced, we're going to put someone else in charge of mediating God's kingdom. Hearing those words, sadly, though, did not bring repentance, but only a hardness of heart. They were like Pharaoh in the Old Testament in Exodus when he kept receiving those plagues. It only hardened his heart, didn't bring him into repentance. And their hardened hearts leads to a judgment and replacement as mediators of the kingdom of God. In response, we looked at this real quickly last week, but it's the jumping point for us this morning. In Luke chapter 20, look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. They find themselves angry with him, hateful towards him, want to see him to die, but yet their hands are tied because of their cowardice, because of their fear of the people. So since the religious leaders could not find any traction in attacking Jesus' authority and message and ministry, they now begin a different ploy. Luke records another confrontation in this passage with the religious and political leaders that take the form of questions. So with that, Luke chapter 20, we're going to look at verse 20. It's here on the monitor just to get you started. But again, I encourage you to bring a Bible. If you need one, let me know. I'd love to send you home with one. So they watched him, speaking of the religious leaders, and they spent spies who pretended to be sincere that they may catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. That's important. So they asked him. So Father, as we open up and look at this question they asked him, we see once again the wisdom and the divinity of Jesus Christ. He is no ordinary man. He is the, the word of God, the son of God, God himself, the second person of the Trinity. And so we have much to learn from these men. In this story, we are not Jesus. We're, we are the cells, the Pharisees, the political leaders. We are always looking to ways to justify ourselves and to find ourselves righteous in our own sight. But Lord, may we read your word today and may your spirit have free reign and work in our hearts as we tackle really a deep uh, politically, but yet also theological question. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want to give you five observations about this question and answer session that Jesus is about to have with these men. So they're looking ready to ask him, but what we need before we look at the question, we need to see that they aim to lure Jesus into a political, cultural, and theological trap. 
They're trying to put a snare out. They're trying to build a, a pit, as we said earlier. They're wanting to trap Jesus into his words. In Mark's gospel, Luke leaves this out, but in Mark's gospel, we learned that the religious leaders sent a group of Pharisees, but also some Herodians to question Jesus. Now, the Herodians openly supported the reigning family of Herod. They had the favor of Roman, as in the fact that all their power and all their influence was due by Roman favor upon them. Now, we have to remember that in their pro-Roman sympathies, that Herod and his family were not even Jewish. Even though they were called, the Herod was called the king of the Jews, he was not Judas. He was from uh, Edom. He was from the line of Esau, the rejected line of Jacob and Esau. They were their ancient enemies and their cousins. The Pharisees and Herodians were not naturally friendly. This is interesting to know, is that the Pharisees and Herodians uh, usually fought. They were not friends, but as we see here, the enemy of my enemy is my friends. So they join up in this thing to attack Jesus. Luke points out plainly that their motivation in asking him this question was to trap him into saying something that could get him arrested. Remember, they could not do anything with him, so they want to put him in the jurisdiction of political issues and with the governor. They realized religiously where their power was, they were just helpless. And of course, they were cowards. They didn't know what to do. They were finding ways to do it, but they said, well, let's try a different tack. So they want to ask him a question to get him arrested from the political authorities. At this time, the religious had no reason to arrest him, so they were hoping to get him in trouble and put him at odds with the political leaders. Now, their approach to asking the question is to begin how many people do, is by deceiving him with flattery. Look at verse 21. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. I don't know how they said that without a smirk. And you show no partiality, partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now, for you and I who have been working through Luke for some time, you would probably stop and say, then why are you not accepting him? Why are you not obeying him? Why are you questioning him? Why are you trying to derail him? Why are you not part of his family, his, part of his disciples? Luke also points out they, they pretended to be sincere, demonstrating their hypocrisy, and really their ill intent, hence why I call it a disingenuous inquiry. They desire nothing to know anything of Jesus. That sentence was terrible, but you got it. One commentator remarks that flattery boosts ego, hence why we tend to use it. It also boosts pride. It can also put pressure on the person who is being flattered. When someone flatters us, it, it leads us to be more inclined to listen to them or to think of them a little bit more highly. Flattery is mostly used to seek favor from someone, or it might be a complete lie, he says, and it's a tool that false teachers use all the time. They flatter, and at the same time, they water down the gospel. The Bible has much to say about flattery. But again, they're confronting Jesus. And the fundamental mistake that they're making is that Jesus is no ordinary man. 
He is not going to be buttered up or deceived by flattery. No, Jesus, as the word of God, warns us in Proverbs 29, looking here on the monitor, that a man who flatters his neighbor and spreads a net for his feet, spreads a, I'm sorry, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. It's a trap. Flattery is a trap. An evil man is ensnared, though, in his, in his transgression, but a righteous man sings and rejoices. So Jesus is not going to fall. He knows what's in their heart. Number three, their attack consists of asking a political and religious question. Look at verse 22. So here's the question. Once they begin to flatter him, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Simple question. I mean, there's not many words there. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, you and I might ask that question as it comes on a, every April, right? As you're talking the 15th or 17th, I believe it is now. You might ask that question when you first got your check and wondered who FICA was and why are they getting almost a third of your money or so. And we might say, well, of course it's lawful to give taxes to the government. But this question has a lot riding on it. This is a, a, a question that has much impact to it. There were many taxes that the Jews had to pay. The one in this passage that they're asking about was concerning what we call the poll tax, P-O-L-L, the poll tax. The Greek word for tax was borrowed from the Latin word that gives us the English word census. The Romans counted all the citizens and made each one pay an annual poll tax of one denarii. Paying tax shows submission. We need to understand that. When you pay someone that you owe, it shows submission to that one. That one owes, that is a debt that you owe. They were hoping here, by asking this question, they were hoping to undermine Jesus' support of the people because the people did not like the tax or to accuse him of stirring up rebellion. So this was a, an attack that was too pronged. If Jesus says, no, <clears throat> it's not lawful, then he gets himself in trouble with the Roman government. But if he says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the Jews are not going to be happy because like you and I, they did not want to pay this tax, but for a different reason, as we're going to see. So the question had both political and theological components to it. Political in that, like us, the people hated paying taxes. In this case, to Rome. The tax could be almost 30 to 40% of a person's income, not just the poll tax, but full taxes that they would have. The zealots actually refused. There were Jews who were called zealots, refused to pay that tax, which one of them was a disciple of Christ, Simon the Zealot. Pharisees disliked the tax, but did not actively oppose it. So the Pharisees really didn't care. And the Herodians had no objection to the tax since they did not have to pay it. Yeah, you can tax the people. We as Herodians don't have to pay it. We're the ruling party. But it was also a theological question. In other words, when they ask, is it lawful? Lawful has to do with the law of Moses that you and I have studied, the 613 laws of Moses. Particularly, they are looking at the first and second commandment that's found in Exodus. Again, this is here on the monitor, just so you can follow with me. This is what's behind the theological component of the question. 
Yahweh said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So for some, it was a political issue. But for many, it was a theological question, a theological conundrum. In other words, the Roman coins that they would have to use to pay the tax were actually considered pagan to the Jews. You see, the Romans thought of their Caesars as their rulers as a god and a high priest. So when you've got a Roman coin, guess what's going to be on the front of that coin? The picture of Caesar. And on the back of it, it would include the words, son of the divine Augustus. So really what you're seeing there is a graved image of someone that they said was God. And you would have to take that and give that back, showing submission to Rome. So for them, it was breaking the second or the first and second commandment. There was a sense in which they didn't like to pay taxes to anyone else, but there was also a theological component behind it. Dr. Thomas Schreiner notes that the taxes supported the hated imperial court in Rome and the pagan cult of the Roman state. There you see the political and also the theological. However, the religious and political leaders did not even understand that the Roman occupation was actually a sign of judgment against their nation. They did not realize that they are in this position because of their own sin, rebellion, and hardness of heart against God. They were hoping that by answering this, Jesus is going to alienate one of the groups and lose influence and prestige among the people. If he says it's yes, then he's going to lose those of the political, the zealots, and so on. If he says, and those who believed in theological, if he says no, then he's going to put off those who would say, but then are we not doing wrong? Since they were not able to stop or prevent Jesus from ministry, they hoped to cause division among his followers. And maybe he would just become someone who would then eventually be silenced with no influence. However, as we look at the fourth observation, Jesus sees through their ruse. He recognizes the trap. He understands their hearts. Look at verse 23, the first part of it. But Jesus perceived their craftiness. He knew what their motivation was. He understood the trap that they were laying before him. He understood the political and theological components and issues much better than they did. Jesus was often confronted by those with evil motivations. The gospel records several times that Jesus was, 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 was listed as knowing their thoughts or perceived their malice or did not need anyone to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man. And why wouldn't he? Jesus is the son of God. Luke has shared that with us. He's more than a man. He's the second person of the Trinity. In Jeremiah 17, a verse that we've shared with you very often, again on the monitor, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
We know this, but however, the rest of that verse goes, but I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You see, Jesus, as the Son of God, sees right through their deceitfulness and attempts to be crafty. He is not going to fall in the trap. He's not going to swing and have the rope snap in the middle. As usual... His wisdom silences his critics as he now responds to their disingenuous inquiry. We see that as Jesus makes an analogy in verse 24 through 26. Jesus says, show me a Daenerys. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Very simple. Give me a coin. Let me see the, the poll tax. Let me, let me see that Daenerys. Whose image as he's looking at it? Of course, they all know. Who, whose image is on there? And they answer, Caesar's. It's correct answer. It's the only answer. And he said to them, and here's the profound statement, one that you're familiar with. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If it's his picture, if he owns it, then give it back to him. But to God, the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. I think it'd be better to say they were dumbfounded. They didn't know what to say. It just blew them away. The Greek word for render means to pay or to give back. In other words, someone else owns this. We're telling the children, God owns everything. It implies a debt. In other words, Jesus is teaching that this Daenerys represents a debt, an obligation that you have. All who lived within the realm of Caesar, which at that time was the known world, was obligated to return to him the tax that was owed to him. It was not optional. They were obligated. It doesn't matter if they were Jews or Gentiles. It doesn't matter if they were Herodians, uh, Sadducees or Pharisees or just the poor widow. Everyone was obligated to give back to Caesar that which he owned. Thus Jesus declared that all citizens are under divine obligation to pay taxes to whatever government is over them. Now, don't turn your ears off now at this point. Rome provided many services to its citizens and territories, such as roads, aqueducts, and bridges. And protect. many of those things are still to here today. I think some of you have traveled across Europe and other places and seen the remains, many of them standing. So that came with the price. Jesus came not to overthrow the Roman political system, and they need to understand that. Jesus did not come to throw overthrow the Roman uh, political system. Jesus came, now listen, came to overthrow the Jewish religious system that had been manipulated and torn apart from what it originally was. We know this now because when it says, and then you have said it is written, but I say to you. He was correcting their misinterpretations and their wrong traditions. Jesus came to build his kingdom. He's not interested here, in this case, in Roman occupation. 
Jesus simply informs his inquirer, inquirers that they are mistaken and that they are confused about the very plans of God. So what is it that Jesus as the Messiah came to build? Well, Matthew 16, 18, again on the monitor, he tells us very simply, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. That is a great promise to you and I. Let me take a drink here for just a second here. <clears throat> Somewhere from between there and there, a frog jumped in my throat. I'm having a hard time getting them out. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. You and I need to understand that. You know, at times we, especially as individual churches, we may struggle. We may, we may find ourselves smaller than we like or uh, finances being a little bit harder. But we need to understand that, that <clears throat> this church is just part of the church that God is building. And it doesn't matter who is in political power. It doesn't matter what cultural things that we may have to face. It doesn't matter all the things that may become more and more ungodly. We need to understand that his church will remain. We are his bride. And that is what Jesus has come to build. The church is a visible <clears throat> expression of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is not of this world. And this is very important because in our Twitter world right now, there is a, a big debate going about Christian nationalism or Christian faithfulness, uh, faithfulness. And how should we uh, as Christians live in a world that is hostile to our faith? And <clears throat> many are saying, well, we need to rise up as a political power as we did in the 80s, the moral majority. And we need to attack and we need to go on the offensive. However, that's not what Jesus' plan was in the first in the New Testament or in the uh, New Testament world, first century. And I don't know if it's really ours today. For the kingdom of God that He is building is not of this world. It is not an earthly, political, or national kingdom. In John chapter eighteen, we read of this interaction between Jesus and Pilate, the governor, the one who would receive the taxes. Jesus says to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, but that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. So yes, I am a king. To bear witness to the truth, everyone who is the truth listens <clears throat> to my voice. This is the Jesus that you and I have come today to submit to. You and I, by our attendance here, by, by giving back to God through our tithes and through using our spiritual gifts, we're showing submission to that king. Our hearts declare the kingdom of God and that we are part of it. The Apostle Paul informs us in Romans, seeing here on the monitor, for the kingdom of God, do I not have that one? Okay, sorry about that. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. It's in Romans chapter 14, 17 through 19. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, speaking of this world, but it's of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. 
that was not the mindset of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the political leaders. They would prefer to cause division among their people rather than to build and mediate the kingdom of God that was given to them. Neil H. Williams writes in his kingdom, writes of the kingdom, excuse me, the kingdom of God, in his book, Gospel Transformation. He says, the kingdom of God is the new and final age that began with the coming of Jesus. His kingdom is not part of this present age, an age where the flesh reigns, where people are divided, relationships are broken, and suspicion and competition dominate. Is that not the spirit of this age? He says where money, sex, and power are abused, where leaders are first and servants are last, where behavior is controlled by laws and identity is defined by race, gender, or social standing, and where gifts and resources are used for the advancement of one's own self. That's not the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of Rome, so to speak. Rather, he goes, continues, the kingdom of God is the new age. It is the age of the spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit. It is the age of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit and following on the monitor so you can get it. The kingdom of God is about the renewal, the restoration, and the reconciliation of all things. God has made us a part of this great story salvation just leave that up there for a moment in case you want to take a picture of it or write it down this is what the kingdom of God is this is what God is building this is what you and I need to understand that God has made us a great part of that story we are part of the renewal the restoration and the reconciliation of all things however it's not of this world And so you and I need to think politically and theologically as well. Naturally, the Jews were preoccupied with the dictates of the Roman government. Now, you can understand why they're uh, obsessed with the Roman world and possessed with the pain of the taxes and how difficult that must have been every time they had to do it. It controlled every part of their life. They were looking for the day when Yahweh would restore Israel as a nation and return them to the former glory that they enjoyed under King David and King Solomon. They had suffered under four empires that occupied and oppressed them to no end for over 400 plus years. The tax was a constant reminder of their occupation and oppression. It was more than just you and I signing a form, right? It was more than just you and I looking at our check and saying, oh, well. It was something much more to them than many times it means to you and I. It was a constant reminder of their oppression and occupation. Jesus had an opportunity here to throw that all into the, he could have stand up and said, you know what, I'm king. You're right, we're no longer going to pay this tax. We're going to rebel and revolt against Rome. However, what Jesus is teaching by that simple sentence, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and the things that are God the things that are God. Jesus is teaching here is that God's children have dual citizenship. You and I have dual citizenship. We have a citizenship in this earth, but we also have a citizenship 
in heaven. Turn, if you would, please, to John chapter 17, the fourth gospel, fourth book in the New Testament. And God is calling you and I to visibly embrace his invisible kingdom. And our vision at OVC is to become seekers of the kingdom of God. Hence why we encourage you and invite you to join us as members so that you can be that visible expression of what God is doing in the hearts of those who submit to him. We are not of this world, but yet you and I are left in this world. Wouldn't it be nice that if we got saved, God just took us straight into heaven? I think that, but then I don't know. I, I kind of, there's other people that I kind of like doing life with at this moment. But what's the purpose of keeping us here so long? In John chapter 17, look at verse 14, we find out. Jesus is speaking. This is his great highly priest prayer. And I know that Randy took you through this uh, a month or so ago. But Jesus is praying to the Father for his disciples and for you and I. Last night before he was to die, he says, I have given them your word, speaking of his disciples, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you, he's speaking to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Hence why your prayer should be in the morning. Father, deliver me not from temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. Leave me not in temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I didn't sanctify them in your truth, and your word is truth. <clears throat> as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we have a, a purpose in here. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified, become more like Christ, freer from sin. But look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You and I are in that sentence. We stand here today because of the, the testimony, the commitment, the martyrdom, the passing on of scripture of these disciples and apostles. So you are in that sentence. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why are you in this world enduring suffering as a child of Christ? So that the world who hates you may believe that you have sent me. That they may believe that God sent his son into the world. John 3.16 but he's not done. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, hence why we want to become more uh, together, so that, again, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So twofold, why are we still here? That the world may know that the Father has sent the Son to reconcile the world back to himself, and that you and I, or that they, may know that God loves them because of the love we have for each other. So we have a purpose here. Jesus, as Messiah, is not here to provide instant political independence for Rome. That is not his point. He is not going to be pulled into this trap. He is not going to be snagged by this snare. They are baiting the hook, but he is not going to bite. This is not his purpose. 
or to give them independence from the world. You and I might say, why? I, I, we ought to just build our own Christian culture. We ought to build our own little place and we just go in this world and we'll just live in this bubble. Well, we could and we have tried. However, then we are not letting the world know that the Father sent the Son or that he loves as we describe or do we, as we demonstrate that love for each other. D.A. Carson writes, and I have this on the monitor, I think this is a great one. The messianic community that Jesus is determined to build must render to whatever Caesar who is in power, whatever belongs to that Caesar, while never turning from its obligations to God. So Jesus is teaching, listen, there are things that belong to Caesar, give to them. You are obligated. He owns them. And so you must willingly, freely give those back to him. And I would say cheerfully. For that shows that God sent his son and that we love. John Piper writes in What Jesus Demands from the World, and I recommend that book. I think Randy has been going through it. That answers demands, this answer of Jesus demands radical allegiance to God's supreme authority over all things. However, Jesus wisely left the scope of these two ownerships and authorities for the listener to answer. Let me put it. Jesus is saying, Caesar, God. Caesar owns things, you are obligated. You are to show submission. But in the same way, you are to honor and show submission to God. Now, I want to break that down. And help us understand then how then do you and I live when we are under obligation to God, but yet also obligated to Caesar, especially when Caesar is hostile to the things of God. To put it clearly, God has called us to show submission to government authority. Let's just get that out there. Both Peter and Paul commanded us to submit and obey. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 through 17, he says, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to an emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom, though, as a cover-up for evil. That would be those who would say, I don't have to pay to Caesar. I don't have to pay my taxes. That would be lie. But living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Honor the emperor. In our case, that would be our government. That would be our magistrates. Paul in Romans chapter 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. In other words, Rome is ruling because of God's authority. For you and I, President Biden is our authority put there by God. You say, well, I didn't vote for him. Well, God did. He put Governor Newsom in its place and so on and so forth. So whatever political aisle you may be in, you may complain and grumble about that, but you're groaning and complaining about the very will of God. So understand that. 
Now, there is much more we can say. This message isn't going to cover it all because we never get out of here. So you're going to have to take what I have and ask me questions later. I hope to sum it up by the end here. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you look on the screen here, Paul writing to Timothy says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Of course. But then what does Paul say? And do the same thing for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may be lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly. And dignified in every way. Now remember, this is Paul who's been beaten, who's been stoned, who's been, who's been uh, in jail, who's going to live his life very soon in prison. Twice. Look what he says. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. How do they do that? By submitting to the government that God has given to us. In some way, that shows that God the Father has sent the Son and that God the Father loves us as he's loved, as Jesus loved his disciples. By rendering to Caesar, they ultimately render to God who put all things under Christ. This is one of the ways to present the gospel is by submitting to our authorities. Jesus warned Pilate and John. He said, Pilate said, you will not speak to me. Remember, he was asking Jesus questions and Jesus was just quiet. He says, do you not know that the authority uh, to release you and the authority to crucify you? Does he, he say, in essence, I have, the, I have the authority to take your life or to give it back to you. Why will you not answer me? Show me respect. And Jesus answered, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So Jesus is recognizing there is a greater authority than the government. However, in this case, the Father has given the authority to take Jesus' life and has given it to Pilate. We see that in Acts 4, a verse I love to share with you all the time. Yet you and I might ask, what if the authority, as in these days, is corrupt? What if it's a bad government or we disagree with this government? Now, now I want to bring it into an American context because you and I know nothing of the king, of a king, of a monarch or of an emperor. We, we have democracy. So we have a little bit more freedom than they did in those days. So how do you and I live out this? Our, our emperor, our government is, is king or it has an authority and God has the authority. What if our authority is corrupt? We disagree. Well, Pastor John Piper notes that God's supreme authority limits the authority of Caesar and the allegiance we owe to them. And that's what Jesus was saying there. Yeah, you've got some authority. You think that you have the authority to give me life and, life and death, but that's only because God has given it to you. If God says no or takes your life, you have no authority at all. You see, where Caesar claims what is God's, God has priority. In other words, the government cannot say that we have full authority. God has priority. As Peter and John responded to the religious leaders when they demanded that they stop preaching and teaching and healing, Remember, they said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you as our government leaders 
Rather than God, you must judge. We must obey God rather than men. So render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, but render the things to God, the things are the God. World Magazine, to kind of put it in a non-American context, World Magazine, in an article entitled The Long Road, quotes a Chinese pastor speaking in a land where freedom is, is not what you and I enjoy. The Christian religion is, is squelched and, 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 and diminished in that country. When, they were, when he was asked about the persecution that was faced by the house churches and the Christians by the government, he said this, this Christian pastor said, our purpose isn't to avoid persecution, but to bring both our faith and persecution we face out into the open. Now, you and I cannot imagine that. You and I live in a land where we can protest, where we can set social media, where we can vote, where we can do all sorts of things. But what if you and I lived in a country that said, you cannot celebrate your faith? Well, most of us, we like to avoid persecution. I don't like to get hurt. I don't even like to stub my toes. But the thing is, as we look at it, he says we need to realize that we need to live our lives in such a way that persecution does arise. What did what the scriptures tell us? All who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. And so there will be times where we may have to stand up against Caesar and not render to Caesar because Caesar is demanding that which belongs to God himself. In other words, God determines what belongs to Caesar, not Caesar. So there's a limiting factor. There's much I can say here, but I want to bring it near to the end. In closing, I want to say it's that God who decides and limits what is Caesar. That's important for us to remember, especially as you and I are living in a world that is very hostile to our faith. You and I now live in a world that has turned that upside down. We live in a world today in which the government is encroaching on God's territory in regards to speaking of COVID and when churches could be open whether they could worship by singing or passing a plate or taking a communion or even how many can attend. In that day, and I think there was, we were one of those churches that did it uh, very soon, is we said, you know what? How we worship and when we worship is not Caesar's to render. It is God's. And so we need to recognize that. So there may be another time when the churches maybe have to come under Caesar and say, uh-uh, no. Because we do not show submission in that way. Do we show submission by following zoning codes and things of that nature? Of course. If the, if the government were to come and say, you know what, churches are going to have to pay property taxes, then we would have to cheerfully and, and do that as one who loves God. Now, obviously, we live in a, a country where we could fight those things legally and, 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 and righteously. However, when we lose, then we have to look at it. Some people will say, well, should I give my taxes if I know they're going to give my taxes to abortion? Scripture actually gives us no, no recourse to say no. What do you think Rome did with the money that the, that the Christians gave to him? He used that money to martyr them, to pay his soldiers to kill them. 
And so there's a sense many times we say, well, then I'll decide what I'm going to give my money to. We don't have that right. Except when it goes against God's will. The government is encroaching. They are laying down laws and rules now today that are in direct rebellion against scripture. It could be about abortion, marriage, sex, biology, along with dispensing justice and upholding righteousness. They are now encroaching into the arena that God has reserved for himself. And they are distancing themselves from the areas in which God says, this is what I have given you. There's a public school that uh, just recently fired a teacher because she would not sign a thing saying that she would lie to parents about the children's gender. Uh, in Arizona, there was a, 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 a church group, a church, uh, no, I'm sorry, a school district that decided to cut ties with a, a Christian school that sent teachers for training because of their statement of faith. They just lost that, by the way, because the court said, no, you can't do that. So there's a sense in which we can fight back in a righteously, politically, theological, correct way. But there is coming a day when we're seeing the government saying, give us this, so show submission in this way. And you and I need to understand and be prepared to understand what is God's and what is Caesar's. And like we told the children, God owns everything even the authority of Caesar. God has given the sword to the government to mediate his earthly temporal kingdom. So we render to him those things that God has given him. However, God has given the keys to the church to mediate his eternal kingdom. And that's the confession that Jesus is the Christ. We must pray for wisdom and understanding, discernment, and a greater measure of faith and grace as you and I learn to live as citizens of both kingdoms. And let me close with a verse that you and I are going to need. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus told his disciples, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Wolves, so be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In that case, it was about evangelism. But the same way, you and I need to understand this. Let's not fall into the snare, the traps, the ways in which they try to deceive us with flattery. Let us not pursue the favor of the government in such a way that we would compromise the word of God. Let's render to things that are Caesar's to Caesar's, but to things that are God, let's render them to God, knowing that God owns all things. One day... You and I will judge the nations. You and I will join Jesus in judging the angels. Today, you and I need to recognize that we are the rulers of this world, the true rulers along with Christ. But until that day, we pray, endure, and submit to that which God has given us. To his glory and our good, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.